podcast on the entire internet. I'm Andrew Berg, and Gaby Lucas is on assignment tonight, and by on assignment, I mean taking care of a sick cat, so thoughts and prayers to Gaby's sick cat. Uh, And instead, our special co-host is, uh, belongs in the conversation to go on the Mount Rushmore of people who have the most combined knowledge of Husky athletics and King County COVID infection rates, is Max Vrooman. Max, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Uh, I should, I should, I should put a caveat on that. Uh, I am doing great for this the year of our Lord 2020. Uh, yeah. But all things yeah. considered, the year killed Eddie Van Halen today. Just keeps getting worse. Yeah, yeah, hits keep coming. Yeah. So we have some news. It's been a few weeks since we've recorded, and that was largely due to a dearth of new. Uh, Husky headlines coming out. You can only talk about the quarterback battle so many times before people stop being interested in it. But now we have a schedule. A Pac-12 schedule was released. Uh, we'll talk our way through it uh, in general, but the, I want to get your initial impressions, Max. The Husky schedule is the Pac-12 North plus Arizona, who fortunately for UW has the lowest projected win total in the conference at a rousing one. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you saw the schedule? Was it anything in there surprising to you or, or uh, you know, maybe even a, a happy surprise seeing Arizona coming up as the crossover opponent? Yeah, I I don't think I was necessarily surprised. I think that was the most likely if you went through and looked at which crossover games, because they, they said initially that they were trying to preserve as much of the original schedule as possible. Um, and it really looked like Arizona was the most likely option. So I, I wouldn't say I was surprised at that, but it, it was, uh, to the extent that it was a surprise, it was a pleasant one. Um, I, I know where the Pac-12 is concerned in the playoff, there's kind of limited limited hopes on that front. But if you're going to have a chance, you got to go undefeated. Uh, there is a 0% chance of a one-loss team making it. So from that regard, uh, every every chance you have for picking up an additional win with that crossover game ends up ends up helping the Huskies. Uh, and yeah, good news for Arizona. They are bowl eligible even if they push on their biggest win total of one win. Uh, so shouts to Sumlin, uh who uh, himself has COVID. So uh, things just keep keep getting worse down there. Uh, but otherwise, no. I, I think this is about. I mean that. The opener at Cal, <laughs> uh, given our trends on early season games against Cal, I don't know that I, I love that. But other than that, this is about as favorable as it could get. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the, the wrapping up with Oregon, which is an interesting uh tweak in the schedule from what we're used to typically finishing with the Apple Cup or having that close to the end of the season. It, it seems like it's probably intentional to have the UW-Oregon game yeah. uh, in Eugene at in that week six. So it's kind of like a, an eliminator game if things go according to most projections for the Pac-12 North. Uh, how likely do you think it is that things break that way and, and what kind of 
variables could get in the way of having that game be the essentially the play-in to get to the Pac-12 title game. Yeah, so, I mean, the good, the good thing is the Huskies can be down one game uh, going into that game and erase it and then own the tiebreaker unless we get some three-way tie shenanigans. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how the tiebreakers are going to work this year given the way the schedule uh, breaks out and the limited number of games. Um, and I don't intend on researching that until we get to about week five of the schedule and find out that that's likely to happen. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's pretty good chance that that, that ends up being the case. Uh, I mean, as long as UW can go four and one, which again, Cal is that big one, the at Cal, but um, home against Oregon State, home against Arizona. Uh, granted, it's no longer Mike Leach at Wazoo, uh, but still have to feel pretty good about uh, even a road game in Pullman. Uh, and then home against Stanford, Stanford tends to play us pretty tough, even when their teams aren't as good. See last year as evidence of that. Uh, but as long as the Huskies can go four and one, uh, and Oregon isn't, I guess they'd have to be two and three really to not have a chance to, to cause a tiebreaker in that situation. Um, so I think it's pretty likely that that game ends up deciding who represents the North again. Um, in my mind, Cal is the Cal's the one who can upset that boat. Uh, but otherwise, uh, that should be by far the game of the year, uh, especially given just the stakes of it. Yeah, and it's further along in the season, so more likely to have weather implicated, having some kind of implication on the game. Obviously, everybody remembers the Apple Cup two years ago uh, when people in Pullman discovered for the first time that it snows in Pullman in the winter. Uh, you mentioned opening in Berkeley and the challenges that poses. Obviously, we've had problems with Cal at any point in the season that we played them under Justin Wilcox. It's been kind of a thorn in the side of the recent Husky teams. How much does that scare you out of the gate, or is that do those past uh, failures not have that much of an impact on, on what to expect this year? Uh it kind of scares me. I'll be honest. Before this, I was I was looking at uh, Bill Connolly's SG Plus rankings, uh, and I, I was curious to where the rest of the Pac-12 teams are because to this point I've kind of just looked at Washington, and I was scrolling through and I I got to about 40 and I didn't see Cal, and then I scrolled back up and I was like, oh, I must have missed them. Where were they? And then I realized, no, no, I didn't miss them, and I kept scrolling and I got to 57, and. I think I'm just scarred from the last two years uh, that I just kind of expected that that team was going to be more of the 35 range, um, and that's kind of going to be the expectations. So that, that worries me a little bit in that the national audience is going to going to look at that game, and the Huskies are probably going to be favorites in, in Cal and Berkeley, um, which I don't necessarily know if they should be, just because uh, – Chase Garber is in the amount of time that he played last year for Cal, uh, really, really seemed to have improved. Um, and I, I don't think he's the best quarterback in the Pac-12. Uh, but if it, if we looked up at the end of the year and Cal was five and one, and he had the combination of passing and rushing stats to be in that conversation, it wouldn't necessarily shock me. So I would say, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty scarred. Uh, on the, on the bright side for that. Um, you know, if you're if you're going to play a road game, granted, it's not like Cal has much of a home field advantage to speak of to begin with, but at least there's not going to be any fans. Uh, and number two, 
Um, I think the the benefit is that at, at that point we'll see maybe maybe the starter doesn't get announced until game night. I think we remember Jake Browning's first first uh, game where going into that day we still weren't totally sure that Browning was going to be getting that start as a true freshman. Um, so it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if uh, the coaching staff tries to keep things under wraps uh, as long as possible, and Cal really doesn't have much time to prep. Uh, and if it really comes down to a Jacob Sturban versus Kevin Thompson battle, those are two really different styles. Um, and I think it does help a little bit that Cal might not know exactly what's going to happen because on top of everything, we have a new offensive coordinator. So theoretically, a new offense for them to not have any tape on. So I at least feel good about that element. Yeah, that has to help, especially given how much our offense struggled the last couple of years against Cal. There was definitely some game planning disadvantages uh, being exposed, at least uh, seemed like uh, to some extent. Uh, either Justin Wilcox had Chris Peterson's number or maybe Bush Hamden's number as a play caller, or uh, Cal just had the outstanding defensive playmakers to help. Uh, close the gap in talent, and a lot of those defensive playmakers have graduated or moved on to the pros. And I also wonder, you mentioned that Cal seemed to be a little underrated by the advanced metrics, particularly SP+. And I wonder if that stretch last year uh, when Garbers was out and the team was kind of rudderless on offense had much of an impact on their overall rating because it was such a different team when he was healthy, particularly yeah. when he was fully healthy at the beginning of the year, and that could make uh, a pretty big difference out of the game. It would be pretty fun if we got a Garbers-Garbers uh, Civil War to start the year, as unlikely as that seems right now. Um, we also have uh, just other things of note. Oregon's crossover game with the South is against UCLA, so we get the Chip Kelly storyline. I know that was probably the way the schedule was set to break down anyway, but it's nice to preserve that nonetheless. And uh, WSU plays USC, which might be the toughest draw from the South, so it might be a bit of a tough uh introduction for Nick Rolovich. He's definitely got his work cut out for him. I know WSU's overachieved the last few years relative to what most experts projected from them. I don't know how much of that was Mike Leach, how much Rolovich will bring that with him into year two or into year one in his program, uh, but it's, it, he definitely has his work cut out for them. What would you guess I know that I think the Vegas uh, projection for WSU was two wins. And do you think they go over that? Do you think that they have a realistic shot to get to three or four wins on the season? I don't know that I see four. Um, three is going to be tough. You basically, for them, and looking at it, both of those games that I would call their most winnable are against Stanford and Oregon State, but both of those are on the road. Um, so it, it's kind of the opposite that um, – that Washington has where pretty much all of our easiest games are at home. Um, they've got all their tough swims at the road, which means uh, if they want it, they pretty much have to beat one of Oregon or Washington at home or USD on the road. I uh, I don't know that I necessarily see that happening. So it feels like two and a push seems like a good bet for Wazoo. Um, I don't know that – yeah, uh, Friday night, I guess – Friday night, I should say, I was gonna gonna kind of reference that as if that was a prime time. Fans are gonna be, you know, rowdy and everything. Um, but that's not gonna be the case. So, yeah. Well, Maybe that's true. Uh, yeah. So I don't. Uh, the Friday night doesn't really mean much as far as just except for the rest element. But uh, still, coming off the Apple Cup, they're gonna have to go to USC um, that next week. I just that that feels like a pretty rough setup if you're if you're Rolo. 
Yeah, that's that's going to be a tough introduction. Uh, it'll also be difficult to see if he can kind of – they rolled through so many uh, quarterbacks during Leach's tenure seemingly without much uh, of a step down, and it'll be tough to just duplicate that kind of plug-and-play nature. But, you know, maybe he can do it. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'll be cheering against him. Uh, so we talked a little bit about how that uh, week six game against Oregon might be the de facto play-in game for the Pac-12 title game. Who would you ultimately pick to win both the North and the South uh, to set up for that title game in week seven? I think the South, I'm, I really wanted to not pick USC, so I'm not going to pick USC. It turns out, um, and I looked this up, and this may be shocking, their head coach is still Clay Helton. Um, yeah. I don't know if you knew wow. this. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Vegas knew this. I don't know. If, has the football public at large been made aware of that fact? Just I can't. I can't trust them. Even though from a talent standpoint, you, you got to think that they're the favorites. But again, uh, they're always ahead from a talent standpoint, and that hasn't helped them much in the recent past. I'm gonna go Arizona State. Um, it is interesting as much as the game of the North uh, for the season is that finale for UW Oregon. Um, the season opener is USC versus Arizona State, um, and I, I really think whoever wins that game is is in the driver's seat for the for the South. Um, I just think Utah's got a lot of talent to have to replace. I, I'm not buying Chip Kelly's UCLA quite yet, and uh, yeah, and also not buying Colorado or Arizona as any kind of credible threat. Uh, so I, I'm going with Arizona State. I think Jaden Daniels is, is a really special player, and he can lead them. And I I reserve the right to change my mind, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with us. I'm gonna go with UW in the North uh, for now. I, I do know the the Ducks got back Gamador uh, Lenoir last uh, but yesterday. Time flies. Um, and that tweet did intimate that uh, Oregon might be getting some more of their opt-outs back if Penny Sewell ends up coming back to Oregon. Um, that that could sway me single-handedly because he is just a transcendent offensive lineman. Um, but but for now, I, I'm going to be the homer until I have a reason not to be. And that reason not to be could easily be just some of the some of the reports coming out of training camp once we get into it. But right now, that's what I'm going with. How about you? I think I agree on both fronts. I think you mentioned Sewell, and that was kind of the tiebreaker for me, too, because he's slated to be, was slated to be the only returning offensive lineman at Oregon, and with a new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, we're dealing with a lot of the same things, but there's a little bit more continuity, at least on the offensive line, and the players that we are starting at least got significant reserve minutes, presumably the ones who will be starting in place of uh, the graduates. So I, I think in that regard, we're probably a little bit better set up on the offensive line. I, I do think it'll come down to that game uh, in week six to decide who, who comes out of the north, and, and I think it'll be a really competitive game, so it comes down to who makes plays there. And, and kind of the same way that you were describing, I might as well just go with my heart for now until we get more data to, to let our brains overtake that. And same thing in the south. I, I Clay Helton has had basically one good year as USC's head coach. He averages – a little bit worse than an 8-4 and four record every year. It seems like uh, a lot of the projections are getting caught up in the idea that USC's recruiting has been better this year, and they do are putting together a really re- good recruiting class, but that you know doesn't help them in any way this year. And they're coming up to very poor recruiting classes by their standards, so they won't have the big talent advantage. And even uh, Keaton Slovis, who's supposed to be the savior of the program, 
you know, he was on the ground a lot last year. Most of that was on the offensive line. But if he can't stay upright and stay healthy, it doesn't do a lot of good to have a, a great young quarterback like him. Uh, and and I, I just I will trust the overall competence of Arizona State and Daniels over the general incompetence but talent advantage in Southern California. Although it's interesting to think, I agree with you, none of those other four teams really stand out to me. Uh, they all kind of seem like they're in uh, down cycles, other than, you know, maybe UCLA is starting to come out of theirs, although we haven't really seen that on the field yet. But one of those teams, just the way the schedule breaks down, UCLA, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, will probably win about four games just because there aren't enough teams on their schedule to end up with a losing record. Even if they lose uh, to their, their uh, USC and Arizona State, somebody's has to those teams have to beat each other at some point. So it'll be interesting to see which of those kind of comes away as a semi-decent team in the end. So you alluded earlier to how it's a, there's a very outside shot at the college football playoff. I, I also noticed that the Vegas over-under for Oregon's win total is six, which means they have to win every single game for that bet to hit, including the conference title game, to get to seven. Do you think there's a realistic shot of that happening or of any of the teams in the conference ultimately making the college football playoff? Even, I mean, one, will anybody go undefeated? And two, even if they do, would that be enough to get into the playoff? On the one hand, it helps. And on the other hand, it hurts. That We look at the, the Big 12, and uh, Oklahoma has cratered Texas. Everybody has a loss in the Big 12. And on the one hand, that that's a huge boost for the Pac-12 because if we – go with the idea that the ACC is going to get one and the SEC is going to get one and the Big Ten is going to get one, then that leaves essentially the Big 12 kind of uh, disqualifying themselves, not entirely, but for the most part early, um, which helps the Pac-12. On the other hand, I think it goes to show that this is going to be a year based on all of the craziness that has happened that uh, teams aren't necessarily going to go according to plan. You're going to have a game probably where somebody is out due to COVID that was an important player um, that's not an injury in addition to injury luck. So I just – I think there are going to be enough tosses and turns this season that we're not going to end up seeing an undefeated team. There's any team that is that – uh, above the rest, even if Oregon had brought every, maybe it was seven seven games is a small enough sample that a team that they could have gone undefeated in that stretch. I just don't see any team going undefeated. I, I would love for it to happen, get the exposure. Well, I should say I would love for it to happen to any school other than Oregon for the exposure for the conference, but uh, I I'm, I don't know about it. Yeah, I had the same thought that, you know, it's we've had enough discussion year over year about, you know, two lost SEC teams going in over one loss Big 12 or Pac-12 teams. It's kind of the same idea of a, a one loss uh, SEC team over an undefeated Pac-12 team with the added uh, complication that we're playing two or three fewer games than a lot of those teams. And there are, you know, a number of different of, of, kind of scary-looking SEC teams. Florida's looked really good in their early part of their season, in addition to, you mentioned Georgia and Alabama, although LSU might have already taken themselves out of consideration. But, yeah, I, I think even if a team does go undefeated, there's a pretty fair chance we end up seeing two SEC teams over the undefeated uh, uh, Pac-12 team. I, maybe maybe be proven wrong, but we'll see. 
If we zoom out a little bit, one other question about the schedule that's on my mind is there are a lot of different versions of schedules discussed over the last couple months. Obviously, the ability to do rapid testing uh, to prevent, you know, putting players who are infected on the field was an absolute necessity to schedule anything for this conference. But given the timeline, the time constraints that we did have, is there anything you wish would have been different about the way they ultimately constructed the schedule? I think given the circumstances and given that they kind of forced themselves into the timeline that they did, that this was about as good as they could have hoped. I, I, don't, I still am skeptical that every team is going to make it through and play all seven games. I mean, we looked at this week, the Titans obviously had their had their breakout. Um, and granted, they're doing uh, they're not doing the rapid result testing in the NFL, to my knowledge. I think they're mostly doing the PCR tests. Um, unless they need to reconfirm something, so that that makes it more likely that you're going to see a breakout. But um, I, I would have really loved to have seen a buy or two uh, set up in here, where um, you know I understand the reasons why teams couldn't get ready in time for a Halloween start. But if you'd had this kind of identical schedule, but then you put in a break um, in what's week six currently, and made that a, a week seven where everybody has a buy and give a chance to make up a game um, or something like that, that might have been preferable. Not might have been, it definitely would have been preferable um, to, to give yourself a little wiggle room, which is what the Pac-12 did initially when they came out with schedule version 2, uh, 2.0. But um, other than that, I think I think this is about as good as I could have hoped for. The crossover being applicable, or sorry, not the crossover, but the, the championship week having everybody play is kind of a cool wrinkle. Um, I like it personally, just it, it does – I'm curious when we get there how much of it is going to feel like a consolation game uh, what, if for the teams that are in the title game. Like if, if UW were to, uh, God forbid, lose to Oregon in the season finale and finish second in the conference, and now they're playing USC or Arizona State for, you know, maybe that gets you into a, a New Year's Bowl if you win that one, but – uh, I don't know how sour that's going to feel, but I think at that point we're just going to be so desperate to have more games that we're probably going to live with it. So I, I think give give the Pac-12 credit. They took a little bit of time to get there, and they painted themselves in a corner with a lot of the other decisions they made. Um, but given all of that, this is about as good as I could hope for. Yeah, I think you're right about it would have been ideal to have a buy. Uh, the only other way I can imagine that that would have been plausible is if they had some leverage negotiating with the college football playoff committee so they would push back their selection date by enough time to schedule a, a bye week or, or a flex week or something to give a little bit more uh, wiggle room if there there is an outbreak along the way or some other circumstances happen. Who knows what's going to happen over the next couple months I mean, we've been uh, I know. <laughs> trying to bring things for the last few months. <laughs> yeah, please do. Okay, off the pod. Off the pod, I'll say. Okay, yeah, that, that we shouldn't record that. That's probably best kept offline. While you're uh, – this would be a perfect time to tell me because we're going to take a quick break for an ad. When we come back, I'm probably going to be, like, quite uh, psychologically disturbed because Maxwell told me about everything that's going to happen between now and December. But we will talk about uh, other Husky headlines, just running running through them. You know, if we had such thing as a lightning round, that's probably what we would call this. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome back 
Thanks for sticking with us. We're going to talk through very rapidly uh, a handful of other Husky headlines before we get into a backlog of recommendations uh, at the end of the podcast. So the first thing, we've had a lot of recruiting discussion over the offseason. There are relatively few spots left in this small recruiting class the Huskies will be taking this year, but we did get news earlier this week that uh, defensive tackle uh, from Washington, JT Tuimolo-Ayu, who's one of the top prospects in the country, arguably the top prospect in the country, depending on who you ask, now has Washington in his top seven. Probably not a huge surprise. I think most analysts have had it down to UW, Oregon, or Ohio State as the favorites for his commitment. Uh, is there any significance to this top seven selection? And based on what you've heard so far, what are you thinking about uh, this new version of JTT? Uh, in order to keep the listeners uh, engaged, yes, this is extremely significant. No, um, I think this is, I mean, you look at the names that are on that list, and I think Michigan maybe was a surprise. I think most people kind of had it before that as a top six. Uh, but otherwise, this is, a, this is everybody we've heard of for the last several months um, that are part of this. I, you know, I think it definitely helps uh, the Huskies' case that they are going to get to play. If we were at a point where the Pac-12 was the only conference that wasn't wasn't playing, I think I think that would officially kill the dream here. Um, but you know, ultimately, the the one thing the Huskies have going for them is that they are the closest to his family, um, and it's local. And it doesn't sound like that's necessarily going to win the day. But uh, the longer things go, and the more someone really has to consider. I am signing off on the idea that I am moving away for at least three years of my life, pretty much the rest of my life if I'm planning on going into the NFL like JTT is um, until I until I retire from a football career. Um, that that decision can can get hard the longer it goes. So I think if if the Huskies want want to do it and uh, get him in the boat, they've they've got to show out on the field. Uh, a Pac-12 title would be nice, and even beyond that. Uh, keeping him from obviously, I, I hope that tomorrow a vaccine comes out and all of COVID ends. But from from the Huskies' standpoint, um, him not being able to take visits is probably an advantage at this point for us. So uh, that's that's my point of view. That makes sense, and I, you know, I've heard people talk about how. Ohio State has such a wonderful track record of developing professional defensive linemen, you know, the Bosa's and Chase Young, and it's absolutely true. But I I think the advantage they have there might be a little bit overstated. The Huskies have certainly done well in that regard, and hopefully I, I'm sure they're spotlighting how, how Vita Vea is putting together an outstanding career, and Danny Shelton has a Super Bowl ring, and down the list there are plenty of defensive linemen who have come through uh, Jimmy Lake's coaching uh under his coaching umbrella who have been not only drafted but very successful in cashing very large checks in the pros. So hopefully that's not too much of a disadvantage. Uh, yeah, I think just to step in real quick, I was just going to say that I think the one the one thing is I think most Husky fans look at JTT and see him as a defensive tackle, and I think he's currently in the 280 range or something, and I think I think most of us see him – getting up to, to 300 and being that kind of Michael Bennett-ish interior pass rusher. Um, I think the big question is going to be, and if that's the case, then, you know, the Huskies have that history, as you mentioned, 
with Vita and with Danny Shelton and obviously Greg Gaines and Vita being more nose tackles. And then Levi hopefully uh, looks like he's going to be a good shot in the draft there. I think they can point to his success as a similar body type. But um, I think the question is going to be, does he see himself as more of a pass rushing defensive end where he might stay at a similar weight or even lose some weight um, to be more of a pure pass rusher? Because if that's the case, there's not there's not really any argument, obviously, with the, with the defensive ends that uh, Ohio State has put into the draft recently. Um, nobody can fault any anybody who's a top level defensive end for going there. So that might be the ultimately what swings it is the role that he sees for himself because any any team in the country is going to let him play any role he wants, uh, even if he decides tomorrow he wants to be a tight end. They're going to let him do it. Um, so that's that might be the real factor that ends up swinging it between UW and OSU. Good point. Uh, So switching to the other side of the football, uh, we talked, Gabby and I interviewed Ty Jones recently, and and, and all the fascinating things he had to say, maybe the one that was most viscerally exciting was the idea that his pure level of enthusiasm about the new offense under John Donovan, there have been more stories trickling out, players having positive reviews, you know, little snippets from press conferences, uh, what Jimmy Lake said in his radio appearance, really focusing on a, a simplified offense with more downfield explosiveness under John Donovan. Do you think that's a realistic thing? Uh, and I'm also interested in this. I mean, if it's so valuable to simplify the offense, why was a world-renowned football coach like Chris Peterson hesitant to do something that would make it easier? Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple ways that. And it definitely feels like Jimmy Lake was essentially subtweeting Bush Hamden with his most recent press conference of just uh, emphasizing the simplicity and we're going to let guys play right away. And I think that was news for a lot of Husky fans, or, or to say great news for a lot of Husky fans' ears because – uh, that was, what, I guess, inside linebacker play, and why are we only seeing Aaron Fuller and Andre Bocelli uh, were the two two things we harped on over and over last year. Um, I think part of the reason might be that UW was in a weird situation where our underclassmen at wide receiver were so much more physically talented than our upperclassmen. And I think Pete, in probably the rest of his career, I don't know that he's ever had a time where the difference in talent between his seniors and his freshmen was that different. Uh, so I think from that respect, in a lot of ways, obviously if, if the athleticism is similar between your freshmen and your seniors, then going with a more complicated offense that also is going to throw more wrinkles at the defense um, doesn't really have a downside because you want to have your, your more veteran players playing anyways. Um, but he really got into a spot where, you know, I love love Darren Fuller, and I, I'm going to probably end up having a more favorable opinion of him than a lot of Husky fans when we look back. But there just wasn't a contest between him and Puka Nakua for who was physically a better athlete. Um, and I, I think if, if we're going to look at it, that might be the one where it finally caught up to him. And clearly, I think Pete realized it partway through mid last year um, that. He, he couldn't just go with the go with the older guys. He had to get some of that younger talent on the field. Um, but I think that might be why it didn't necessarily bite them in past years, and he was able to keep that system. Yeah, that's interesting. It does make sense. Old habits die hard. 
so we had, I think the last time we recorded, we'd already heard that Joe Tryon was skipping uh, his senior year to go to the draft, and now we also have confirmation that Levi Onzerike will be in the draft rather than playing this fall. That's, you know, slightly different positions. They often will call the, the buck linebacker or lineman the linebacker, and Tryon certainly uh, was likely to have his foot uh, or his hand in the dirt for a fair number of downs. Uh, do you think, just from your perspective, I mean, obviously this is going to lean on some younger players, and these are positions where we've recruited reasonably well the last few years, but do you think this is going to cause depth problems, just kind of chaining your way down the depth chart for – you know, now it's not just the second guy and the third guy who are seeing playing time, but the fourth guy and maybe the fifth guy as you get further down. Do we have the kind of depth needed to cover for losing a couple top-end talents like that? I think we do as long as we don't see, you know, if we see multiple injuries at one of these positions, that's where we no longer have have the depth to be able to withstand that. But, I mean, I think – Feel pretty have to feel pretty good Zion and Smalls being able to replace Tryon. Um, obviously, I don't think any of them individually is going to be as good as Tryon was going to be. Um, but those are those are key that you certainly think have a good chance of being able to to at the very least be average. Um, and as far as on the defensive line at tackle. Um, I, I think Thule stepping up as a starter is is going to be really good alongside Josiah Bronson. Um, and I think Taimani is a very serviceable. And obviously behind him, we have Bandis and Tuatelli who are extremely highly recruited. But that gets to be the point where we now essentially have three defensive tackles who have extensive playing time at a position where we usually like to rotate through four or five guys. Um, so as you said, I think that, that really comes down to where that, that fourth guy, whether it's Tuatelli or Bandis, um, who ends up winning that spot is going to have to play. And obviously if one of the three guys in front get hurt, now you're relying on multiple redshirt freshmen who really have zero experience outside of garbage time. Uh, so if, if all of that, all of those guys stay healthy the entire year, then, Great, which I guess maybe that just means the answer is no, because um, by definition, uh, it's not really showing a lot of depth if you can't withstand an injury. Um, and and they, they might be able to, but it, it concerns me a little bit until uh, we start seeing on the field the impact that those, those third or fourth guys down have. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and it's particularly Levi's individual strength of being an interior lineman who can get penetration and create pressure on the quarterback from inside, collapse the pocket uh, with his athleticism, even if he wasn't the kind of two-gap, giant, 320-pound guy, like, you know, Thule maybe, replacing him. Uh, so now you're you're having to find pressure on the quarterback and passing downs uh, from two different places rather than just one. Uh, so another note Related to the schedule, uh, looking at the broadcast uh, schedule for the Pac-12, none of the games so far that have been scheduled are scheduled for the Pac-12 network. Everything's going to be on a Fox or ESPN affiliate. So is this the beginning of the end for the Pac-12 network? Do you think that this is just a one-off, or is this kind of an admission of failure and kind of realizing that the exposure of these major networks and the lack of uh, coverage for the Pac-12 network is not viable long-term for the conference. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is an admission of failure. It doesn't necessarily mean that we won't go back to having games on 
Pac-12 network. I think, you know, it'll be curious if they do when we get to basketball season, and especially for, you know, the the women's basketball games that aren't normally on some of the major networks. Um, and that was kind of the reason you had Pac-12 network partly was to be able to broadcast all of those games and have a place for it. Um, I think what it really says is that without having those tie-ins to ESPN or Fox, um, the way that some of the other networks do, that uh, it just really seems like it's going to be difficult. And obviously the the Pac-12 laid off a significant portion of the Pac-12 network staff last month. So clearly they, they didn't have the employees to be able to handle all of that. I mean, they could hire everybody back, but I, I think it makes a lot of sense for right now um, that that's not there, and maybe they'll regroup in time for next fall and be able to put a product out there um, that is better than what they had been putting out. Uh, but I, I think that model really seems uh, in trouble, and I see the Pac-12 network in its kind of more recent incarnation being able to be viable long-term at this point. So you mentioned you you may not be an expert on the uh, TV contracts. You probably do have a bit more expertise professionally on the uh, status of the COVID spread in in and around uh, Seattle uh, without divulging any proprietary information. We're seeing a, a significant outbreak. It seems like I, I believe it's it's upwards of 90% of the new cases in Seattle proper over the last few days have been in the UW Greek system, which is not a great look. Uh, do you have any yeah. concerns about this for the, the football team? I mean, obviously, I, I, I have other concerns about people uh, getting themselves sick w- with a preventable illness uh, in the Greek system and elsewhere. But uh, any, as far as relating this back to the football team, do you have any major concerns about that, or do you think they're pretty well insulated from this sort of uh, activity? Uh, I, you have to have concerns. Uh it, it's. I think I feel better about it at UW under, granted it's no longer Chris Peterson, but Jimmy Mitlake with the same same Built for Life general program, that the ability to kind of keep the, the football team and say to them, hey, if you want to be able to play this year, you just don't go north of 45th. Um, and <laughs> I think that is something that maybe maybe they're able to, to get into the players' heads. But at the same time, um, Especially what I worry about is as we start getting closer to the season and you start getting some of these true freshmen or redshirt freshmen who maybe aren't necessarily in line for serious playing time, um, that that seems like a recipe for someone going to a party they shouldn't go to. And uh, even you know, the, the starters, I think, they, they know what's at stake. Um, and I think for the most part are going to be there. But I, I worry about the 18- and 19-year-olds who aren't, thinking on a Friday night that they have a game to, to play in the next morning. Um, that's, that's what really concerns me. Um, but these are, there's a reason that everyone was worried about colleges having students come back. And uh, even if we're not having in-class uh, tuition, it's just these are, these are young kids who don't make good decisions, for which the answer to a lot of questions is let's go out and party. Uh, and I don't, I don't really see how you could be not concerned that that's going to lead to the beginning of the end. <laughs> that's an optimistic take, but you're right. I mean, it's it there are that's going to remain an issue uh, 
hopefully it's something you can stay insulated from. I was going to say it's tough to stay south of 45th when they just opened one of those Korean fried chicken places um, in, by the old Pizza Ragazzi, but you can always do Postmates, I guess. They can probably get somebody to deliver it. And I can't yeah. remember the name of that restaurant. It's so good. Um, finally, uh, as, assuming we do get to continue playing and there isn't such a significant outbreak that we uh, end up losing out on the season before we even start, as we get into the fall practices, other than the quarterback competition, which is obviously uh, a very uh, – intriguing storyline. What are you most anxious to learn about uh, as the practices get going in the fall? I, I think seeing where, I, I guess the two things, one, seeing how things play out on the offensive line, um, given the amount that we have to replace and that we lost a lot of mainstays on the offensive line from last year. Um, I'm, I'm curious how, if Jackson Kirkland does get moved out to left tackle, how he's going to look. Um, if Luke Wadenberg is at center, who's gonna who's gonna be taking over those guard spots? Um, I, I, we got a lot of you know redshirt freshmen and redshirt sophomores who seem like they could very easily win one of those jobs, but there's there's more uh, there are more of them than there are open spots. So I'm uh, gonna be really curious between Victor Kearney and Ulamu Ale and Henry Benavalu, um and. It, Miles Morrell, incoming true freshman, all of those folks, who's actually going to get those three spots? And then we kind of alluded to it earlier with the wide receivers. I'm just really curious to see, um, are we going to get the true freshmen, Jalen McMillan and Roma Dunze, to be able to come out and instantly secure playing time, um, given the simplicity uh, that we've supposedly inserted into the offense? Um, Because uh, a guy like Jalen McMillan, who uh, first – first uh, play last year in uh, in the All-American game, takes it to the house on a slant. That's just the kind of athleticism that we have not had at that position um, outside of John Ross, essentially. Dante Pettis, obviously awesome, but I don't think he was really the top-end speed that you had at that position. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how much we're going to see a breakout in that um, or are we going to, and again, nothing nothing against if it ends up being Terrell Bynum and Ty Jones, obviously Ty Jones, friend of the podcast, um, who end up being the starters. But I, I'm really curious to see who else is going to get involved there. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I would say, from my perspective anyway, Bynum and Jones are more physically talented than Fuller and Bacellia were. So I think there's at least a little bit less of a gap, although we don't have anybody else like Jalen McMillan, and it would be great to find at least packages that can get him involved, you know, maybe start lining up with like eight wide receivers on each play because it's a pretty deep position group all of a sudden, which it has not been for years. Uh, I just forgot the name of the Korean fried chicken place, but producer Rob produced the name for me because he's a superstar. It's Baka Bak. I think the first one is in uh, West Seattle. It's so good. If you haven't eaten there, get the like ordered on Postmates or whatever the the delivery app is. It's so wonderful. And it was also my favorite part about it as a longtime uh, Guy Fieri truther. Uh, he was he did it on Diner Drivers and Dives a few years ago. And if you go into the restaurant, they just play the clip of them on Diner's Drivers and Dives on loop in the restaurant the whole time <laughs> you're there, <laughs> which is just such a great way. Uh, yeah. Well, now, now that we're recommending things, it seems like a good time uh, to get into our show closing recommendation section. Um, Davey's not here to talk about pickleball <laughs> again, uh, but if you well, – I, I, I am on it. I, uh, I played pickleball last week. I am on it if, if we need the pickleball hour. 
<laughs> I've walked by people playing pickleball, pickleball at the park near my house almost every day. And it, it, it gets intense. Like, people are just, like, fired up at this game where you, you don't really move very much. It looks fun. I, I don't play it regularly, but I, I would play it. But I don't think I'd ever get on the court because it's so busy. Yeah, that that definitely is a concern. Although last week I was playing and it, it really did seem it was kind of the first time not that I I play a ton, but uh, the bros really took over one of the one of the courts and we had four four shirtless dudes who every time they spiked it were just giving it a bat fist opening. Yeah. Um, and that's not, it's not really the pickleball uh, mindset in general, but. Uh, at, at some point, the laws are if a sport becomes popular, the bros will take it over, uh, yeah. um, and it might be there for pickleball. Which you is can important. probably play pickleball with a beer in one hand, but yeah, I think obviously if if you're not shirtless in Seattle in October, then what are you even doing? Um, so if you do have any other recommendations, queue them up. I got a list since we haven't recorded anything for like a month plus. So very quickly, two books. I was looking at my Kindle today. I think I've read. I, I mean, we've had some time here. I think I've finished like six different books, and most of them were not very good since the last time we recorded a podcast. Two of them I really liked. Uh, one is called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. It's uh, about uh, basically how to not uh, sell yourself out to an attention economy, not just social media but other ways, just things trying to distract you. Uh, another fiction book by Lily King called Writers and Lovers, very different from the type of thing I usually like, but just really, really well written. Uh, basically, like a, a story about a mentally ill young novelist uh, living in Boston in the late 90s. Uh, really reminded me, slightly different timeline, slightly different place, but really felt very resonant to my uh, college experience. Uh, a podcast called Bunga Bunga, which is a history of the Silvio Berlusconi, the media magnet, prime minister, owner of a soccer team, rich businessman in uh, Italy who was brought down by sex scandals. And it's hosted by Whitney Cummings, which is strange, but she's really good, very uh, uh, charismatic doing it. Uh, a movie, An American Pickle, is a Seth Rogen movie. Is that about pickleball? It is not um, oh. at all. Not, not even tangentially pickleball. It is opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it gets its name because uh, Seth Rogen plays this guy who uh, was like a, a, a peasant from Eastern Europe in the late 1800s, early 1900s, comes to Brooklyn and works in a pickle factory, uh, falls into a vat of pickles and gets preserved for 100 years and then comes out of it uh, basically the same age and becomes uh, enemies with his great-grandson, who's also played by Seth Rogen. That's pretty much the premise. It's pretty funny. Uh, and all kinds of good TV. Perry Mason, the HBO adaptation with my, uh, Matthew Reese in it was really good. Ratchet just started watching a few episodes in. Uh, the the uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest prequel about Nurse Ratchet character uh, with Sarah Paulson in it. Really good on Netflix. And the Great British Baking Show. I was figured Gaby and I would talk about Noel Fielding, but uh, she's not here. So you can just talk about um, how, how great he is as a very offbeat British comedian. He's solid. I don't know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go with great, but um, he he's got his moments. I I, I don't know. I I miss the original team um, <laughs> from from the first couple seasons. So I don't know. Uh, it's it's always felt a little bit off. Uh, at least on on Great British Baking Show. Other other platforms. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of his. Uh, yeah. 
along along with that for me, I guess TV, uh, same same night that Great British Baking Show returned on Netflix, uh, season four Good Place finally came out, which I had been waiting to watch until it came out on Netflix. So I started that last night to get back into, uh, which is a show I very much enjoy. Uh, the the most recent book I read um, is is definitely not one that the majority of people are going to want to read right now, but um, it was actually the the book that first got me into healthcare or being interested in healthcare, uh, The Great Influenza by John Barry, the story of the 1918 pandemic. <clears throat> it takes a certain type of person to read that book right now, but if anything, it does almost make me feel better because um, as as many people as have died, at least it's not more than 1% of the entire global population, as happened back then. Uh, although there are some sentences that, uh, and some excerpts that really talking about, for instance, Philadelphia and being like, there was, there was zero effort uh, at any level of government to do anything to contain this. It's like, huh, that sounds vaguely familiar. Um, but other than that, uh, if, if you've got the Constitution to be able to stomach a pandemic or book right now, fascinating. So. There you go. <laughs> that sounds like exactly the kind of way to gear up for the football season. There's a chapter in there about, like, Newt Rockney getting ready for Notre Dame versus uh, Army game or exhibition game in, in leather helmets. And it had to get canceled because of the contact tracing. Uh, I think that's it for this week. Thanks for uh, listening in. Or we should be more weekly going forward as we get closer to the season and things start happening. Thanks for sticking with us. We're close, closer than ever to actually playing football again. Uh, any final thoughts, Max? Uh, no, I, we got, uh, I guess I should say tomorrow uh, apparently is the Pac-12 Media Day, which they announced at like 5 p.m. or so tonight. So uh, watch out for the media poll being released and some Zoom calls tomorrow. Um, but other than that, just, just getting ready, getting ready for the season, getting some columns queued up. Sounds great. Thanks for sitting in tonight. We'll wish Davies Cat uh, the very best. And in the meantime, stick around and we'll talk to you again in about a week.